Well, it's good to be back with you. I'm Pastor Steve, and if you're new to Faith Bible Church, several of our other pastors on staff here at Faith Bible Church have been sharing the Word of God with you the last few weeks. But it's good to be back, and we are going to continue in our trek across the book of Matthew. So I encourage you this morning in your Bibles to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We noted when we started Matthew around Thanksgiving time, That Matthew is humanly penned by the Apostle Matthew. He he refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector, which would not have been a reference of endearment during his day. And most likely this book was written very early. Early We know for accounts uh, sometime between 80, 44, and 50. We know from the content of the book that for sure Matthew had a purpose in his authoring of this book underneath the inspiration of the Spirit of God to show unbelieving Israel that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. And remember the word Messiah is a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. It's the equivalent to the Greek word Christ. And by showing that Jesus is the anointed one, Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David that his descendant, that David's descendant, would sit upon the throne of David over God's kingdom forever and ever. And in the language of that promise, God tells David that this descendant of his would be a son to him. And so we find that Matthew is showing that Jesus is the son of David. He is the Messiah. And we see that Matthew is wanting to encourage his Christian readers, especially Jewish Christian readers, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we look to the scriptures and as we study this book of Matthew, our hearts seek to be encouraged in the person of Jesus Christ as well. We saw as the book opened in chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 that Matthew records the genealogical record of Jesus. That he not only is the son of David, but he's actually a son of Abraham. Thus being in a position to be the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. That a seed of Abraham would be a source of blessing to all the earth. We saw in the end of chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 that Jesus' virgin birth is what actually enabled Jesus Christ to enter, to take that step down from the throne room of heaven, enter earth, take on humanity so that he would be able to die in our stead. As we come to, came to chapter 2, we saw wise men from the east bringing gifts fit for a king. And then we saw Herod the Great trying to kill the infant King Jesus. As we come to chapter 3, we still see Matthew with this theme of developing that Jesus Christ is King. He is the promised anointed one. And also Matthew introduces, introduces the fact he's not only a king, he is a king with a kingdom. 
And so we come. See, to Matthew chapter 3, and as we read verses 1 through 12, and I'll read it out loud, you can follow along in your copy of the text. Notice what John the Baptist says is required to enter the king's kingdom. A person cannot enter the kingdom of God without recognizing That they are a sinner. That he or she is a sinner. Matthew chapter 3 starting to read in verse 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every one, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And as Matthew records this account of John the Baptist's ministry. He does so for a purpose. As he stresses the king and the kingdom of the king, he's going to show us that in order to enter the kingdom, a person has to acknowledge that they are a sinner. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without recognizing that sin separates you from God. Some of you may have watched the Golden Globe Awards this past week. I didn't. But um, I saw some clips. And probably the most famous clip that came out of the Golden Globe Awards was Oprah Winfrey's speech. In Oprah's speech, she used this phrase. She encouraged people to be speaking Your truth. Now that was an interesting phrase. And my goal here is not to unpack the context of what Oprah was talking about there. That's not uh, where I want to go this morning. I simply want to focus in on those two words, your truth. Those two words are indicative Of a culture shift that has taken place 
in our culture over the least over the last 30 years. And that culture shift, it's imperative that we recognize it. Because we are living in a day where people believe that truth is what they define it to be. And if truth is what I define it to be, then why isn't sin what I define it to be? And so there has been a paradigm shift. There has been a worldview shift that has taken place in our culture where people believe that they define truth. Now that has far-reaching implications for us as Christians. It has far-reaching implications for how we talk to people about the person of Jesus Christ and the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And John the Baptist's ministry stresses not how I define truth, because if I define truth, I wouldn't define it the way I, that he does. But John the Baptist's ministry stresses God's truth. And John's ministry is going to say this. A person cannot enter the kingdom of God without acknowledging that they are a sinner. Before people can find forgiveness in the Messiah, they must turn the direction of their lives away from living for themselves and for sin and toward Jesus. As we come to chapter 3, we find this man named John the Baptist out in the desert. Verse 4 tells us that John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. We've been having a little fun in the office this week because some of our staff have been following this eating plan called Whole30. Some of you may be familiar with it. And I was told that you can't eat honey on Whole30. And I said, well, that's ludicrous. Whole 30 is, should be debunked. It's, I'm a beekeeper and there's nothing more natural than honey. So that's just my little jab at Whole 30. No, no, we had fun with that. But here's this guy, John the Baptist, whose father's a priest, had every right to live the life of a priest, a high calling, but instead, he chooses to serve outside the religious system. He's out in the desert. And it's interesting that this clothing that John the Baptist wore in this diet that he ate is actually reminiscent of Elijah the prophet. And we're not going to turn there this morning. But if you would look at 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8, you see some similarities to the prophet Elijah and John the Baptist. Remember, there is a period of 400 years where Israel has not heard from God. It's called the intertestamental period by scholars. It's the period of time from the end of the writing of the Old Testament to Jesus' entrance into the world. 
No prophet has spoken. And yet now there is a man who is ministering as a prophet from God, declaring a message from God. And his message is twofold. Half of his message is this. The kingdom is at hand. And the Lamb of God is here. And the second half of the message is that, is this. To enter the kingdom of God, you must repent. That in order to experience blessing, there must be repentance. That's John the Baptist's message. Repent, verse 2. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is the same kingdom that we've heard all throughout the Old Testament. It's the the kingdom that 2 Samuel 7 talked about. That time when David's descendant will one day sit on David's throne and institute a reign that will go forever and ever. A kingdom of righteousness and peace where God in the person of the Messiah will rule on David's throne. That's the kingdom. And here John the Baptist says that is available. It's imminent. It's coming. How do I prepare for it? Repent. Repent. Behind what we find here in Matthew 3 is a whole lot of Old Testament scripture. The concept of needing to repent is not new to an Israelite. Remember with me back to your Old Testament. In the end of the book of Deuteronomy, as the people of Israel were going to enter into the land of promise. In Deuteronomy chapters 28, 29, and 30, God told Moses to give the people a word picture. A living word picture. And he instructed Moses to take half the people and put them on one hillside and half the people to put them on the other hillside. And then Moses had this antiphonal dialogue back and forth with the people. And he looked at the people on this side and says, if you obey God, you will have wonderful crops. You'll have many children. You will have peace in the land. And then he looked to the people on this hillside and said, but if you disobey God, You will have devastation of crops and you won't have peace. Rather, you will have foreign invaders that come into your land. And the people of Israel knew from Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29, and 30. If they wanted to experience God's blessing again, they had to return to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2 We read this, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. That concept of returning to the Lord from Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 is capsulized In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. Sometime you'll hear 
Christians today taking this verse out of its context and trying to apply it to me today. It's really not to be applied to me today. It's a passage for Israel saying that if you return to the Lord, God will actually bless you according to the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. That you once again will have great crops. You'll have peace in the land. But the principles of 2 Chronicles 7, 14 are great principles. And here it is. Excuse me, 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm in 2 Samuel. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 is this. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. In those two passages... Deuteronomy 30 verse 2, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14, we see this concept of repentance. Repentance is this. Each and every person on the face of the earth is walking away from God. We're doing our own thing. We're living our lives the way we want to. Our heart is bent towards sin. Repentance is Turning our life completely around and start walking toward God. Here in Matthew, toward the Messiah. It is a complete change of direction. And Matthew sees that this ministry of John the Baptist is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So he quotes in verse 3 from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Again Old Testament scripture. In Isaiah chapter 40. The people of the northern tribes of Israel have already been taken captive by the Assyrians. The southern peoples, Judah, are about a hundred years away from being taken captive by the Babylonians and be in captivity for 70 years. Isaiah writes to encourage the people of Israel that once they're in captivity, there will be a day when God comes back. When God will set up his reign. Remember for the average Israelite, they... Literally, literally, in their worldview, believed that God was dwelling among them. And he was. When the temple was erected, we can turn to passages like 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, and see that as they were dedicating the temple, God's glory Filled the temple and people were struck with awe as God's glory filled the temple. He lived among them. But we know from Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11 as Israel's sin entered in, God's presence departed from them. And so Isaiah the prophet says, prepare Prepare because there's a day when God will once again dwell amongst his people. Make ready. Make the roads ready. And Matthew says, 
Isaiah was actually looking to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, is his message is, the Lord is with us. His kingdom is ready. Let's prepare. How do we prepare? By acknowledging the sinfulness of our own hearts. And so John, in verse 6, baptized people in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, there's different kinds of baptism in the scriptures. John's baptism was a very unique baptism. It's different from Christian baptism. Basic to the idea of baptism, the very kernel of that word, is the concept of identification. And here, these ones coming to John to be baptized were identifying with the idea that I'm a sinner. And so they came to John, and in genuineness of heart, they were baptized, confessing, yes, I am a sinner. When I was a kid in about fifth grade, my parents were in Denver visiting our relatives. And my parents were on a highway in Denver. The traffic ahead of them stopped. My father stopped. But then a car behind them hit them without braking at all, full blast. And my mother was hurt really bad in this accident. And from fifth grade all the way through the end of my college years when I got married, she was in chronic pain, terrible pain, all of my growing up years from fifth grade on. Now, my mother was very meticulous. Everything in our house was supposed to be just right. And the frustration was so hard on her because she wasn't able to do that because of the pain. And so she expected us kids to keep the house the way she expected it to be. Needless to say, we couldn't do it. And so we had continual friction and anger in our home. Well, finally, my father got tired of this back and forth and said, I'm going to hire a cleaning lady. To which us kids responded, it's about time. So we're thinking, yes, finally, a cleaning lady is coming. To which my mother responded, okay, now you kids go clean the house. And I'm thinking, what? Are you serious? I've got to clean the house in preparation for the cleaning lady? That doesn't make any sense. Why do I, are you kidding me? I have to clean up the house so that the house is clean for the cleaning lady to come? Yes. And it was so absurd. And I kept thinking to myself, why can't we just say we have a dirty house? <laughs> of course, my mom could never admit that. And you know, at the heart of that is really the heart of repentance. Because at the heart of repentance is me finally saying, I've got a dirty house. The house of my life, the house of my heart, the house of my mind. And I can't clean it up myself. And I need someone to clean it for me. You see, that is at the heart 
of repentance. Repentance isn't feeling bad. Now sometimes remorse for sin can come along with repentance. But in its essence, repentance isn't feeling bad. Repentance isn't cleaning myself up so that I can be presentable to God. That's not repentance. It's impossible to do it. And once we've walked along in the Christian life a little while, we realize that the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we realize how much of a sinner we are. He doesn't just dump a dump truck on us and help us see all of our sin at once. Repentance isn't cleaning myself up so I can be presentable to God. No, repentance is a change in the direction of our lives. You know the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 talks about the true state of our hearts. This is what he says. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Each and every one of us are on that pathway walking away from God. To repent is to say, the house of my life is dirty. And I can't fix it. And I'm turning the direction of my life around. And I'm coming toward the Messiah. There's no coming to God. There's no entering the kingdom without acknowledgement of sin. Now what are the implications of that? What are the implications of that for Faith Bible Church? Faith Bible Church is passionate about reaching out to people who do not know Jesus And introducing them to a relationship with the Savior of the world. That through faith in Him, believing that He is God, that He died on the cross as payment for our sin and rose again from the dead, we can enter the kingdom, have our sin forgiven, become children of God, have His payment for sin when He died on the cross credited to the account of our lives through faith in Him. We are passionate about that. Every week, there's several pastors in our community that we gather here in our prayer room for an hour every Thursday morning. And one of the main things we do is pray for our city, for men and women and boys and girls to come to faith in Jesus Christ. On Tuesdays, I go in there and we have a, we still have our mural of the city of Cedar Rapids and we write names of people who don't know Jesus. And I literally put my hand on those names and pray for people to come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was so exciting for me at Christmas time to learn that one of the people I've been praying for has put his trust in Christ and I was able to put a little cross by his name. We are passionate to see men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why at our vacation Bible school, every child that comes sits across from an adult who talks to them about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
That's why we have our wild game feast coming up the first weekend of February. So that we have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who have not heard. We are passionate about the gospel. But this reality has to be integrated into our thinking. This cultural shift that's taken place where today people think that truth is what how they define it. Today people think that if I can define truth, I can define sin. So that cultural shift that has taken place has to be integrated into how we relate the gospel with people. First of all, remember we talk a lot here about the gospel as being good news. We also have to stress the bad news. And John's going to do that in a few minutes. That apart from Jesus Christ, each and every person who rests in their own righteousness thinking they can be a good enough person to earn merit with God will spend eternity separated from God in a place of eternal torment called hell. And secondly, it's important for us to recognize that when we start a dialogue with people about the good news of Jesus Christ, it has to be that a dialogue and we have to start back... Not just sharing the good news, but sharing how we know it's good news. And it's important for us. And one of the reasons why we spent time before Christmas looking at several Old Testament prophecies that were made 800, 1,000 years before Jesus came. And how they found fulfillment in the New Testament. Is that bolsters our confidence that this truly is God's word. That the spirit of God did undergird the human authors of this book. So that this book contains absolute truth. We define truth and we define sin by what how this book defines truth and sin. And so in our dialogues with people about Jesus Christ, we also have to dialogue about how we discern truth. And how we can know and how we can have confidence that the Bible gives us an adequate record of God's truth. Now, for John the Baptist, he's here baptizing these folks. And scads of people are coming. It tells us in the text here, all Jerusalem and and all over. It's just tons of people coming. Well, the religious leaders see that. Think, well, this would be a good opportunity to shine. We're religious leaders. We better get in on this. So they go get in the baptism line. And we see in verses 7 through 12 that John the Baptist is going to call them out. And he's going to say, your heart's not right. You're not repenting. There's no, there's no change of direction in your life. You are self-righteous. You think that because you are a descendant of Abraham that you're good with God. And so John will stress that true repentance results in life change. That when a person recognizes, finally recognizes I'm a sinner and I can't fix it and turns 
and starts walking toward the person of Jesus Christ, there's going to be life change that results. We don't make ourselves clean in order to come to Jesus. But after we've come to Jesus and put our trust in him, John says that the spirit of God is going to come into that person's life and going to start transforming that person. And here we see John saying to these scribes or to these Pharisees and the Sadducees, you guys aren't genuine. You see, verses 7 through 12 tells us that repentance results in life change. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. To call somebody a snake would be saying, you're not clean. And he goes on, and down in verse 9, he, he identifies what they're depending on. He says, you just think it's because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that you're Jewish, that you're good with God. That'd be like me saying, hey, I'm a preacher's kid, I must be going to heaven. Not. And so he says to them, well, do you suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father? For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children up to Abraham. John says, that's so ludicrous. If God wanted to, he could look to these rocks and, and raise them up as children who are descendants of Abraham. You see, in the good news of the kingdom, there's also bad news. And the bad news is that when the Messiah comes and sets up this reign on David's throne, everyone who is standing in their self-righteousness, everyone who's not willing to admit that they're a sinner and that they need a savior, they're going to spend eternity separated from God. Look at all the imagery and all the wording toward that effect here. In verse 7 it says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that we can say to to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. John is not, John the Baptist is not saying here that if a person sins, they go to hell. What he's saying here, that a person who is self-righteous and just likes to look the part, but have never turned and come to the person of Jesus Christ, they're just standing in their self-righteousness, that person's not going to bear any fruit in their life. And it's indicative of the fact that they are not part of the kingdom. And anyone who's not part of the kingdom is going to spend eternity separated from him. Look down at verse 12. He pictures the Messiah as having this winnowing fork and this grain on the threshing floor. And he takes the fork and throws the grain up in the air and the chaff blows away. Look what he says about the chaff. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he'll gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, Matthew talks about this place called hell. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, we read this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's what he's talking about here. You see, there is bad news. But the good news begins with men and women and boys and girls who are walking away from God, who aren't seeking God, finally coming to a point where they turn the direction of their life and say, I've got a dirty house in my heart and I can't fix it. And they come to Jesus. John, in the humbleness of his heart, says, you know, there's someone coming after me who is the Messiah. I'm not he. I'm not even fit to carry his dirty sandals around. But when he comes, I baptize people with water so they can say, hey, yes, publicly, I'm a sinner. But he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Reminiscent of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. The Spirit's baptism. That will mark him as the Messiah. The Spirit's baptism is what changes lives. Because when he talks about being baptized with Spirit, with the Holy Spirit and fire, I think the fire is talking about the purifying work of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God comes into someone's life, he begins a process of transforming that person from the inside out. So when we come to faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes upon us. And the Spirit of God is the one that enables us to live for Jesus Christ. And he's the one that transforms us. And so John is quick to say, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, it begins by acknowledging, I've got a dirty house. I'm a sinner. And no one enters the kingdom apart from acknowledging that they are a sinner. Kind of a tough week for me this week because hunting season is done. I'm an Iowa kid. My dad bought me my first Savage 410 bolt action shotgun when I was in about fourth grade, fifth grade. And I've spent my life in the fields of Iowa. It's just I just, it's renewing to me to be out in the field. But it all came to an end this week. And so as part of my ritual, I clean my guns before I put them away. And I was cleaning my my uh, double barrel shotgun that I use for pheasant hunting. And I have a little ritual. And it's just a, it's a fun time. I think about all of my hunts during the season as I clean my gun. And I'm a little bit anal. I always do it the same way. And I take out the choke tubes and I spray this cleanser down both ends of the barrel. And I have this cleaning rod and I go through the top barrel 10 times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I go through the lower barrel 10 times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I get it all spick and span. It's all clean. And I look down the barrel. It's dirty. And I'm thinking, what's up with this? I went through my regimen. I took the choke tubes out. Everything was clean. I cleaned it. I'm going to do it again. And so I sprayed in both ends of the top barrel. I sprayed in both ends of the bottom barrel. Ten times in the top barrel. Ten times in the bottom barrel. I looked down the barrels. They're still dirty. I think, what's going on? And then I looked at my cleaning rod. And realized my cleaning rod is dirty. There's no way I can clean this gun with a dirty cleaning rod. And that's what it's like 
for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl that thinks they can somehow make themselves right with God. We can't do it because we're dirty. We can't do it because we're tainted by sin already. There's no way I can make myself presentable to Jesus Christ. There's no way I can clean up my life so then I can come to Jesus. That's not what he calls us to do. He calls us to come to him as we are. And instead of saying, hey, look at me. He's saying, you come to me acknowledging you're a sinner. That's where entrance into the kingdom of God begins. And as Matthew is going to unfold, we're going to see the good news That Jesus as the Messiah came to earth, lived a sinless life, so that he could take all the penalty for sin that I deserve, that you deserve, upon himself when he dies on that cross. And we're going to see in the book of Matthew that he's going to rise from the dead, proving that he's God. And that when we put our trust in him, his payment for sin is credited to the accounts of our lives, so that we can be right with God But that journey begins by acknowledging I'm a sinner. Now you may be here today. You may have been at Faith Bible Church a long time. And know in your heart that you've never made that decision. Or you're not sure if you're right with God or not. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church will be back in a prayer room. And you can uh, just go back and say, hey. Pastor Steve said there's a book back here about how to know a person's right with God. Can I have that? Maybe you want it for yourself. Maybe you want to give it to a friend. I encourage you to stop back at the prayer room and get one of those. We, Our team's going to come up and close us in, in a song. I just asked them to come up now. But here in John 3, we have this wonderful reminder that even though there's been this cultural shift here, That God's word is what's true. And John's message is true. That to come to him does not mean I make myself presentable. To come to him means I come as a sinner.